The Gist is sponsored by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, April 20th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. The Pulitzers were announced today. The New York Times won three. The LA Times won two. Bloomberg News won its first Pulitzer. They're making a foray into real news. Uh, The Public Service Award, which the committee considers the number one Pulitzer, was won by the Post and Courier of Charleston, South Carolina. Staff of 80 and a daily circulation of 85,000. So a very small paper to win this huge award. And that was won for a series on the high numbers of deaths resulting from domestic abuse. But what I like to do with the Pulitzers is let them tell me about the great journalism out there. And a lot of these stories take a lot of time to read. But right off the bat, the thing I always go to is the cartoonist. This way, I found a guy named Clay Bennett of the Christian Science Monitor. He's brilliant. And this guy who won the Pulitzer for cartooning, Adam Ziglis of the Buffalo News, is great. Now, I've always been a fan of cartooning. And in the old days, cartoons were bad. The last time, actually, there's Buffalo News has won three Pulitzers uh, for cartooning, and the first was won by Bruce Shanks in 1958, and I looked up that cartoon. It's a factory in the background, and a guy in the pose of Rodin's The Thinker wearing, like, overalls, and he's labeled rank-and-file union members, and he's holding a newspaper that says Crooked Labor Leaders, and there's another newspaper that says Fifth Amendment Dodge, and here's the interpretation, the official interpretation. Cartoon shows an American union member posing like August Rodin's famous sculpture the thinker. The workers saw their leaders take the Fifth Amendment in a congressional investigation, which made them look dishonest. Now the union members were trying to figure out what to do in the future. I mean, this was so... They used to have all these labels with everything, so it wasn't even a cartoon. It was just one label. Like, this was a Pulitzer Prize winning cartoon. This was won by Carrie Orr, and then you have someone who looks a bit like Khrushchev hitting someone with a t-shirt labeled or a tank top labeled state department always on the defensive and then scattered on the ground are the words monroe doctrine cuba berlin u2 and the description is cartoon criticizes the state department's defensive and seemingly weak attitude concerning the competition in space the soviet union was leading in many things the first to get to the moon for example the notes on the floor indicate that the artist thought the u.s had already taken too many defeats terrible cartoons but this guy ziglas who one, so elegant. There's one cartoon that he has. It's just a football helmet. And in the back, it says, Surgeon General's Warning, Retire. That label is on the helmet. There's another one about football. It's a woman with a t-shirt that says NFL Wives. It's a, a V-neck t-shirt, like an actual woman would actually wear. And then she has makeup. And it's she has a large black eye. And then she has some concealer makeup. And then the headline of it is face mask. I mean, without many words, this guy is getting a great point across. There's another one that shows Putin depicted as a Russian nesting doll. He's opened half up, which visually is cool to see Putin, the body of the nesting doll, and then him sideways. But who's that inside the Russian nesting doll of Putin? It's Stalin. Just a great, elegant visual. I would check this guy out. On the show today, we talk about the substance and style of presidential campaigning. Okay, really just the style. They might be giants will favor us with a song. But first, 
I spoke to author Brian Burrow. I spoke to him in a location outside of the studio. We talked about a country, a country that was beset by a series of bombings years ago. There were almost 2,000 bombs set off in a single calendar year in this country, and most of the targets were government buildings or some part of the military-industrial complex as broadly defined by the aggrieved. The people of the country processed it. They didn't like it. They dealt with it like you deal with bad weather. It's unfortunate but inevitable country was the United States, and it wasn't Ireland or Colombia or Tsarist Russia. It was the early 1970s. It was the USA, and the name of Brian's book, which we'll talk about in a second, is Days of Rage, America's Radical Underground, the FBI, and the Forgotten Age of Revolutionary Violence. Brian Burrow joins me now. Hello, Brian. Uh, Good morning. So, You talk about explosions, all these explosions, sort of press releases by explosion. How did bombs become a form of communication back then? It is stunning how many bombs went off during the 1970s that we've we've pretty much forgotten. Thousands. It began in the late 1960s, really, with student protesters uh, tossing impromptu Molotov cocktails uh, toward ROTC buildings on myriad numbers of uh, college campuses. And once the 70s started, uh, the hardest core of those uh, decided Molotov cocktails weren't enough, and they began building and detonating bombs. Who got hurt? Uh, the first ones to get hurt happened to be members of the uh, the famous Weather Underground who weren't very good at, at uh, initially building their bombs, and they managed to uh, blow themselves up. Three of them died in an infamous explosion in New York's Greenwich Village in uh, early 1970. By and large, during the 1970s, 98% of the bombs that went off didn't hurt or kill anyone. They were mostly what you might call protest bombs that went off late at night. There were a number of exceptions, however. The single deadliest underground attack of the decade uh, occurred at a Wall Street restaurant in 1975 in which four people were killed. By your estimation and your account, were these people more politically impassioned people who let their passions uh, take over and express, and that expressed itself in violence? Or were they violent people? Were they sociopaths who used politics as either an excuse or something to hang what would be otherwise violent impulses upon? I think the former probably explains more of these people than the latter. Certainly there were some people that you can find violence in their backgrounds, men who beat their girlfriends, that type of thing. But I think by and large, you have to take the members of the American underground of the 1970s at their word that they were doing it in an effort to change the government, who sincerely believed, as far-fetched as it may seem today, that a second American revolution was actually imminent and that violence would speed the change. It never fomented into a larger mass movement. Now, how much can we credit law enforcement and law enforcement fighting this these uh, acts of terror for that? Not very. Uh, I would say U.S. law enforcement was spectacularly ineffective in its pursuit of these underground groups, beginning with the Weather Underground, the Black Liberation Army, the Symbionese Liberation Army. By and large, the underground ran its course or went away by the early to mid-1980s because it was abundantly clear to just about everyone in it that, in fact, this revolution that they all believed was imminent was not, in fact, coming. Um, And those who kept on eventually were tracked down after many years by police or they fell victim to illegal drugs or depression, or they simply just gave up. Who'd you talk to today that was members of those movements then? Oh, well, one of the things that's most notable uh, about the book is that I think only now, 30 and 40 years after all this happened, 
are many of these people willing to talk about it, not just because statutes of limitations have expired, but because they're in their 60s and 70s. And they're at ages where they want to encounter uh, or, or make peace with their legacy. I was fortunate enough to talk with members of almost all these groups from the Weather Underground's bomb guru, the young man who actually came forward for this book and acknowledged he made all their bombs. He went on, uh, never having been prosecuted, went on to a long career as a New York City teacher. I talked to people like Sekou Odinga, who famously broke out uh, Asada Shakur, the uh, BLA member who's now still in Cuba. Uh, and he talks about uh, breaking her out of a state prison with uh, the help of a 357 Magnum shoved into his belt and a stick of dynamite. The teacher? The teacher? That's that's surprising. That's shocking. It's not. If you look at, say, the 12 most senior, senior and longest live members of the Weather Underground, I'd say two-thirds of them went on to uh, careers in higher education. Uh, most of them uh, became affiliated with universities, whether Bernadine Dorn at Northwestern, Bill Ayers at a University of Illinois campus, or in this case, the bomb guru's name was Ron Flegelman, and he just happened to go on to uh, teach special ed kids in Bensonhurst for 25 years. You know, when we compare the attitudes towards these bombers, and uh, they weren't, I mean, I guess to some they were romantic figures. They were prosecuted. They were, you know, outlaws for a reason. But when you compare that to the radical Muslim terrorists of today, it was totally different. To what do you describe the vast chasm of difference in the attitudes between these two types of terrorists? 9-11. I think... For many, many years until 2001, we didn't take this type of activity seriously as a threat to American society. And with 9-11, with, you know, 3,800 people killed, suddenly bombs lost their romance, uh, as I think they'd lost them years years before. But looking back now, the hardest challenge for someone like me is to explain to people today how bombings could have been seen as essentially semi-legitimate means of public protest. You know, you look back then and people just did not see this as uh, the government saw it as a risk, certainly the the Nixon administration. But ordinary men and women on the on the street, my favorite reaction of all was uh, the woman interviewed by The New York Post after a bombing in 1977 in New York City. And her comment was, oh, another bombing. Who is it this time? It was just seen as like the urban landscape. I mean, things were a bummer in the 70s, and it was just part of this basket like, look, there's urban decay. There are these, uh, you know, large pockets of crime. We got a huge debt problem. Fort to City dropped dead. Bombing at Francis Tavern. It was just part of a basket of, you know, generally terrible things going on. Skyjackings, throw that in there too. Exactly right. And frankly, on a list of an ordinary American's fears or concerns, during the 1970s, radical bombings would have, you know, hard, hardly made the top 10 behind the fact that New York is going out of business and cocaine and crime and all these other things. It was sometimes easy to overlook all that was actually going on. I think that's one reason why, as a populace, we've largely forgot the extent of the violence. Yeah. And you know what? I think that was logical, too. I think that is the right ranking of them. Um, the bombings didn't hurt as many people as some of these other ills. No, by and large, if you lived in New York, you were totally aware that Weather Underground and the FALN and some of these groups were bombing things. But the fact is, mugging people in Central Park was killing a lot more people than radical bombing. So um, I think that that's why it became 
almost accepted. It's amazing when you go back and you read the articles about these individual bombings. Unless someone was killed, there is almost never any expression of outrage. It's very much like that woman told the Post, eh, another bombing. You know, who is it this time? Having written this book, when people say today, where's the outrage or we're surprised there's not more radicalism in America, what's your explanation for that? I am too, uh, given uh, the 60s and 70s and the incredible political passions that seem almost unfathomable today. You know, I mean, it's hard to imagine people today really resorting to, a, 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 you know, assassinating police, bombing the Pentagon, bombing the U.S. Capitol. And today you talk to people and they have those passions, but there is a belief somehow that you can work within the system. Uh, and who's to say that that's not right? But you also hear voices, especially of these these older radicals who basically, you know, I've heard them say, boy, the left today, it's just got no balls. Yeah. But Maybe there's something to be said for, you know, we we decry or mock the idea of um, internet activism or, you know, you click like and all of a sudden you've created a political protest. But maybe there's something to be said with just the ease of communication, at least acting as an escape valve, at least giving people the idea that there's something to be done and they don't have to resort to these ends. I couldn't agree more with you because while it's easy to make fun of Twitter activism, the fact is I've talked to uh, Ray Lavasser, who ran one of these underground groups uh, out of the state of Maine for nine years. He told me, look, I set off bombs to get people to read the stuff that I'd written. And now I go online and just tap, tap, tap. And thousands of people (laughs) read it with with nothing, you know, you know, with no problem at all. the fact is, if you look back at the 1970s era underground, yes, it's possible if you're on the left to admire the passion and the commitment of these people. But it's also inarguable that they launched a kind of war on America and they lost. And it's very difficult to look back at the legacy of their activities, of these bombings and the assassinations, and find anything that led to any type of constructive change in the American condition. What it led to, by and large, was bomb-sniffing dogs and metal detectors and increased security at public buildings. That's the legacy of the, the violence that we experienced in the 1970s. Brian Burrow is the author of Days of Rage about this period that wasn't so far away yet can scarcely be believed. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Hey, it's Harry's. Harry's is back as a sponsor, and Harry's is here to answer the question, when did shaving get so expensive? You got some hair on your face, you want to get it off. Well, why does this cost 30 bucks, 40 bucks, at eight razors a pop? Harry's is there. I use Harry's all the time, every day. No, because I believe in the kind of scruffy look. But when I want to de-scruff, I de-scruff with Harry's. Harry's a razor company that was created by guys who are passionate about creating a better shaving experience. They bought a blade factory in Germany. They cut out the middleman. They cut them out really cleanly and without any jagged edges. Why? They're Harry's. They've got a German factory. It's an amazing shave at the fraction of the price of a drugstore. And they'll also give you a bonus offer if you've never ordered from harrys.com before. And if you haven't, why not? You need razors. Someone in your life needs razors, and Harry's is a great company, and ordering from Harry's, this thing that you definitely need anyway, will help the gist, because if you type in the code GIST, they'll give you five bucks off, so that's a month's worth of shaving for $10. Go to harrys.com now, they'll give you five dollars off if you type in the code GIST with your first purchase. I'll spell it, won't spell the W's, we'll spell H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, enter coupon code GIST. And now the spiel, open mic night in Nashua. Over the weekend, 
the first in the nation Republican Leadership Summit was held in New Hampshire. That's the official title. It was the first in the nation Republican Leadership Summit. One of these things where they put the, in the title, everything you need to know about the thing, like nobody beats the whiz or the country's best yogurt. I think things with claims in the titles in general are a little lacking. They clue you in to a bit of insecurity on the part of the people who did the naming. A lot of dictatorships follow this model, right? The People's Democratic Republic of North Korea, whatever. I mean, if you've got it, if you're the thing, that's the thing. You don't got to say things around the thing. Let me give you three examples of things that just are. The Olympics, Christmas, Beyonce, right? They're not known as the birth of Christ, Christmas, present giving time of year, Christmas. It's just Christmas. So the main point of this first in the nation Republican leadership summit in New Hampshire is to burnish your credentials. If you are one of the many millions of Americans who is running for president, hopefully on the Republican ticket and the way to say, Hey, I'm a Republican. I'm a relatable Republican is to be funny, to start with a quip. And every Republican hopeful is learning that the way to spell hilarious starts with Hillary, kind of. When Hillary Clinton travels, there's going to need to be two planes, one for her and her entourage and one for her baggage. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was Rand Paul. And now put your hands together for the comic stylings of Marco Rubio. Hillary Clinton's going to raise $2.5 billion, which uh, that's a lot of Chipotle, my friends. <laughs> Timely, timely stuff. And now he's another freshman senator with Hispanic heritage. And when he's done, you know you've been crucified. Ted Cruz. You know, I have to say, as I was coming up, I was a little bit startled because I could have sworn I saw Hillary's Scooby-Doo van outside. <laughs> well, and then I realized it couldn't possibly be that because I'm pretty sure y'all don't have any foreign nations paying speakers, right? So apparently, Senator Cruz believes life begins at conception and death comes at a Nashua ballroom when attempting terrible material. By the way, if you want to get your pop culture references right, not that Scooby-Doo is cutting edge, but the van is not called the Scooby van or the Scooby-Doo van. It's the mystery machine. They rode around in the mystery machine. That's the name of the van. Anyway, we got a late drop in here. He wants to work out some stuff. He's playing a lot of clubs in the Washington, D.C. area. In fact, he says he was a former governor of Virginia. Who knows about that? But Jim Gilmore. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's, it's wonderful to see everybody here. I'm glad that I'm on time. I was afraid I was going to be a little late uh, because... Uh, I was frantically upstairs going through all my emails, seeing which ones I wanted to delete and uh, get rid of. And uh... Bang! Nailed it! Stuck the landing! Zing! All right, what? Okay, I'm seeing we got one more now. Now, this next guy, he's a cerebral guy, kind of conceptual humor, but go with him. Hang in there, ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Jindal. I want to talk to you about the need for fairness in our tax code system. I want to talk to you about the need for the successful to pay more in taxes to the government. I want to talk to you about what a great success President Obama has done in the Middle East, this historic agreement he's negotiating with Iran. And I want to talk to you about my grandparents who immigrated. I'm sorry, I've got the wrong notes. This is Hillary Clinton's speech. I'm sorry, that, this isn't my speech. Actually, that wasn't bad. That last one was okay. I see what he did there. Now, I didn't mention John Bolton. That guy just stuck to strategy. And who cares about that, right? Actually, we should, but we don't. We meaning anyone who might vote 
in New Hampshire or for Republicans or cover this in the media. We love style. Now, to some extent, we're stuck loving style because the big rollout, the big announcement was Hillary. Did she give us any substance? So we, of course, have to cover the style. She didn't tell us what she thought about fast track trade authority. But still, we like it way too much. And I think there are a couple of reasons. I think maybe we in the media think this is what the viewers and listeners want. Maybe it is. It probably is. You know, they're not as high-minded as the people who give out the Pulitzers say they are. The audience, I mean. But also, it's kind of lazy. And I do think there's something about the way media is set up where even people who are willing to give analysis don't want to just come out and say, that's a terrible policy. Uh, They might say it about things that are all but incontrovertible, something about global warming, something about vaccinations. But even there, they're a little cautious. I think they're much happier slamming Bobby Jindal on saying a weird speech or giving a weird response to the State of the Union or being unelectable. We're very happy talking about the theatrics of that. But when it comes to Bobby Jindal saying the U.S. should arm Ukrainians, I think it's harder and it's less comfortable for people in the media to say, well, you know what, that's just as likely to cause a spiraling of tensions as it is to make Vladimir Putin think that we're rebutting his efforts, right? To engage on policy is something we're not as comfortable with as engaging in style. And here's great proof of that. There's a prominent political writer. His name is Mark Halpern. He co-authors the definitive books about presidential campaigns. He used to work for ABC. Now he works for Bloomberg. And Halpern scored every one of the candidates who spoke in New Hampshire on substance, on style, and then gave them an overall score. The overall score was pretty easy when it's like uh, Gilmore, C minus, C minus for style and substance. He's going to get a C minus for overall. Rick Perry, C plus style, C plus substance. He's going to get a C plus overall. But whenever there was a tie to break, like Marco Rubio, A minus for style, B for substance. What do you think he gets overall? Gets an A minus, the same as his style score. Rand Paul, B plus for style, A minus for substance. Overall, B plus, the same as his style score. Ted Cruz, B plus for style, B for substance overall. You see the pattern? B plus, the same as his style score. Style always broke the tie. Sometimes it more than broke the tie. Check out these grades. For Carly Fiorina, gave her a B plus for style, a D plus for substance. So what's that going to be? A C plus, right? That would be a C plus? No, she gets a B for overall. Same exact thing with Donald Trump. B plus for style, D plus for substance, B overall. It makes no sense, except it makes a ton of sense because Mark Halpern represents the tip of the spear in the current trends of political prognostication. And the other thing is, again, when we judge them on style, we never even note when their style lacks substance. Do I have to say it again? It's called the mystery machine. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, just producer, decries all the ennui-inflicted paramours. Managing producer Joel Meyer doesn't need to hear about your torpid suitors. Executive producer Andy Bowers has had it with a lot of these indolent gentlemen callers. Learn when the gist is ready to go from Yo. Download the app Yo. Sign up for podcast. And when we're ready to go, we'll Yo. The gist has had its fill of the languid sweethearts. But they might be giants. They might be giants who debut their weekly dial-a-song selection here on The Gist each Monday. They want you to know about 
all the lazy boyfriends. Who needs a direction? Who needs motivation? 